morning. So, if you are new to us today, I promise you, normally our scripture readings are not quite as depressing as it was today. For that reason, I want us to start in a bit of a strange place this morning. I want us to uh, start with um, a psalm of worship, because the, the section of of Revelation that we are entering into today, and will be in for a while now, um, is the most judgmental portion in all of Scripture. So we're going to read this psalm together, interactively, leader and people responding to one another, and we're going to read it with passion and with energy and like we actually believe it. Can you do that? Psalm 78, please stand. I will start. You respond. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Yeah, it's going to do that, isn't it? Of course it's going to do that. One more time. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Amen. You can be seated. Let the rivers clap their hands. And the mountains sing together for joy. Why? Because God comes to judge the earth. This psalm celebrates Judgment Day. Now, in my experience, we do not. We do not celebrate Judgment Day. We do not sing about it, celebrate with joy, play music. Yet, those things are all over this psalm. It is a psalm written to be sung in worship in response to the news of God's coming judgment. The ancient people of Israel clearly saw the judgment of God as a good thing. This is not the way we see things. We talk about not judging other people. We tell people, please don't judge me. Judgment is not good. But that was different for these people. So let's keep that in mind, where they come from, how they see things. Let's keep that in mind as we dive into Revelation 6 and beyond. So far, most of what we encountered in Revelation has not been that controversial. But today, things get a bit dicey. You can probably hear, as Kim read the passage, Revelation 6 is one of those chapters that gives the rest of the chapters in Revelation a bad name. Today is the day I should have made someone else preach the sermon. Should have picked Pastor Christian. She's the kind and smart one. She could have done it really well. But it's mine. 
As I mentioned uh, last week, we now head into a section of the book in which we are introduced to the first of three cycles of sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. This section will last all the way through chapter 16. Last week, chapter 5, the Lamb took the scroll from the hand of God. And the contents of this scroll will not be revealed until later. All that is going to happen in chapter 6 is the opening of the first six seals. And with each opening, John sees something dramatic and frightening. The seventh seal will not actually be opened until chapter 8. But when it is opened, we are immediately introduced to the next cycle of sevens, the seven trumpets. Likewise, when the seventh trumpet is sounded over in Revelation 15, chapter 1, the seven bowls of wrath are then introduced. So, more and more scholars, as I've done my research, are describing the relationship. I don't know if they're all looking at each other's test papers or what, but they describe these relationships of three cycles of sevens as nesting dolls. Now, these are not your traditional Russian nesting dolls. These are Star Wars nesting dolls. I didn't know that existed, and I didn't know it was something I needed until I saw this. <coughs> Just to lighten the mood a little bit. So the seven bowls nest within the seven trumpets, which nest within the seven seals. Each of the cycles ends with a very intentional phrase with some very slight modification. We find it in chapter 8, verse 5, chapter 11, verse 19, chapter 16, verse 18. That phrase reads, And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The repetition of these words at the end of each of these cycles of seven tells us that each cycle ends at the same time. Again, you cannot look at a lot of what happens in Revelation, and certainly not these three cycles of seven, in a strict linear chronological way. You just can't. There's something wacky going on here. They all end at the same time. The day of the Lord. The final judgment. That's the kind of language we see at work there. Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, an earthquake. All describes the day of the Lord. What we are seeing in these seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls in Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 6 through 16 is the same thing from different points of view. They all speak of the time between Jesus' resurrection and his return, which means they speak of things that have happened, things that are happening, and things that are yet to come. Three cycles of seven. Three times seven judgments is intentional. Seven is the number of perfection in Judaism, and three is the greatest expression of something. So three cycles of seven is a triple dose of perfection. Or as Scott McKnight and Cody Matchett put it in their book, Revelation for the Rest of Us, these judgments describe the complete, perfect erasure of evil, and that is good news worth celebrating. This morning, we're going to look at the first of four of the, four, the first four seals, and we're going to explore seals five, six, and seven next week. And the reason we divide them up this way is because seals one through four are very different in content and structure than seals five, six, and seven. Each of these first four seals, uh, the structure, when you open it, contains this. The lamb opens the seal. A living creature, one of the four living creatures around the throne, says, Come, and a horse and rider appear. And then some form of judgment is described. Let's jump in. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, I, John writes, I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come, come. 
And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Here, as the Lamb opens each seal, the four living creatures, as I said, that we met surrounding the throne of God in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, speak one at a time. Each one says one word, come. Once the command is given, the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride forth, each one a different color. These very symbolic riders, this is highly symbolic language, these horses are an allusion to four horses and chariots that are described in one of the prophets Zechariah's vision, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, but there are, there are a lot of differences in how they're described there and how they're used here. The first rider comes out wearing, uh, riding a white horse. He holds a bow, he wears a crown, he is bent on conquest. White is the color of victory. The bow is the imagery of warfare. And the crown on his head is the crown of a victor, not necessarily a king. This rider is not Jesus. This rider is also not the Antichrist, a word which never occurs in the book of Revelation. Just let that stay there for a while. We'll get back to that a few chapters later. The rider on the white horse is rather a symbol of the way God sometimes uses military might of nations against other nations for judgment. He did so when the Babylonians uh, conquered Judah. What does this image of conquest mean? Now Rome, of course, where all this takes place in the Roman Empire, Rome, of course, saw itself as invincible. But the threat of a conqueror bent on conquest reminds Rome that perhaps she is not as secure as she thinks. The promise of the rider on the white horse is the promise of invading armies. It is the promise of war. The clock is ticking, and Rome's time is limited. Verses 3 and 4. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given the power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. What's going on? Rome had a name for the peace that they offered to everyone. Pax Romana. This meant the peace of Rome. The Roman poet Horace, who lived and wrote in the decades just before the birth of Christ, once said of Pax Romana and of Caesar, Caesar Augustus, I think, as long as Caesar is the guardian of the state, neither civil dissension nor violence shall banish peace. To which the rider on the fiery red horse says, you want to bet? Rome eventually does fall. The image of chaos and disorder and violence, of people slaying other people, is something with which these early Christians were very familiar. Already in chapter 2, if you remember, the people in the church in Smyrna have been warned that they may need to be faithful even to the point of death. And those in Pergamum were commended because they did not renounce their faith in Jesus, even in the days of Antipas, who was put to death in their city. Now, with the rider on the fiery red horse appears violence and chaos. Uh, all that stuff is just going to increase exponentially. The third seal, verses 5 and 6. Not that. There we go. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. 
Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. The rider on the black horse holds not a weapon but scales, the scales of justice. The voice that cries out from among in the midst of these four living creatures is likely God who mockingly echoes the words of greedy merchants, revealing both the sin and the judgment in one breath unjust practices, famine, and the economic fallout. Is everybody having a happy Sunday so far? (laughs) It was common practice in the Roman Empire to earmark tremendous quantities of grain to provide for the city of Rome and for her soldiers. So when God mocks the merchants who say, do not damage the oil and the wine, he speaks to the reality that throughout the rest of the empire, Large areas of land were reserved to grow more profitable products, olive oil, wine, grapes, and wine, so that the land was therefore unavailable to be able to grow the very much needed grain. This meant that some people profited immensely while others went hungry because of the shortage and the price gouging that resulted. Think the toilet paper problem early pandemic, (laughs) only much worse. They were charging up to 16 times more than normal for basic necessities like food. The fourth seal. Verses 7 and 8. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. This writer has a name and apparently a companion. Death and Hades. Death is reality. Hades was a place. Hades was understood not as hell, as we think of hell, but as the place, the realm of the dead. Here, though, both death and Hades are personified. They are proper names. And they bring death to a quarter of the earth. And as the fourth seal is opened, things have indeed gone from bad to worse. It's almost like by the time you get to the fourth seal, it's like they just throw in the kitchen sink. Anything that can cause death is now listed here. This horse, by the way, is more literally pale green in color. Pale green, the color of sickness, the color of of decaying flesh on a corpse. Death and Hades have been given the power to cause wide-ranging death, and it's a substantial number, a fourth of the earth. But where is the good news in all of this? This death, this injustice, this destruction. Well, there is good news here. First, there is mercy in the limitation. There is mercy. For while a fourth of the world is indeed a substantial slice of the earth's population, it is also limited. One fourth, no more not convinced? Let me keep going. Second, notice something that is easy to miss. God is not the one that sends these horsemen. God is not the one that sends these horsemen. The command to come comes from the lips of one of the four living creatures around the throne who, if you remember from a couple of chapters back, represent the created order. The horsemen are not sent by God but by human sin and activity on a fallen earth in opposition to God. In this way, judgment comes within the consequences of sin. 
The consequences of sin are the judgment. Third, throughout Scripture, the purpose of God's judgment and God's proclamation of judgment is repentance and restoration. Judgment does not come simply to do away with everybody who opposes God, but in hopes that those who are under the threat of judgment will repent. And we're going to see this unfold in a big way as we work our way through the rest of the book. Fourth, we need to consider how persecuted and oppressed followers of Jesus heard these judgments. How would they hear them? For them, they are evidence that God has not abandoned them. They are, these, these proclamations of judgment are evidence that God will rise up and will judge those who have opposed and oppressed them and persecuted them and put them to death. In other words, for those who are righteous and still stand faithfully with God, God's promise of coming judgment is good news. The same way it was all the way back in the beginning of our Bibles in the Exodus. When Israel cried out, that they were enslaved and wanted to be delivered, God brought judgment against Egypt and brought them out. Good news. It means an end to conquest, an end to violence, an end to injustice, and an end to death. We proclaim this together as we read Psalm 98 earlier. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy, let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. It doesn't mean, of course, that the oppressed will not be negatively impacted by these things. They will. It just means that this is not the last word, that God's plan goes far beyond what can now be fully seen, let alone understood. And, and we, we do not need to miss this. These images of judgment are also a picture of life on a fallen planet already. These images of judgment are also a picture of what life is like on a fallen planet already. This, what I'm about to say, might be the most surprising thing you're going to hear me say today. I want to challenge you to take what I'm about to say to you, carry it with you this week, read the news, watch the news, however you get your news, and ask if what you see doesn't give evidence to the truth of what I'm about to say. Are you ready? It doesn't matter, I'm going to show you anyway. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are already here. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are already here. They have been for a very long time. That is not to say that there's not also a coming of them in the future. There is. Remember these three cycles of seven, they, talked, they, 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 they show us what's gonna ha- what has happened since, the, return, since the, the, the resurrection of Jesus until his return. We're still in the midst of that. There's still future yet to come. This is the human predicament. This is what we live in. The rider on the white horse has been wreaking havoc and bringing violence throughout history. At this very moment, he is at work in Ukraine, in the Middle East, and many other places in the world. He has been at work in these places all along. He will continue to be active in the future. This dramatic scene, like others that we're going to encounter, is both here and now and yet to come. 
It is both here and now and yet to come. The same is true of the rider on the fiery red horse. People do violence to one another every day. The consequences of our sin are part of our judgment. The same is true of the rider on the black horse. In a world in which people rebel against or ignore God, the result is injustice and greed and economic instability. And the same is true of the rider on the pale green horse. Death has been a reality from the earliest pages of our Bible. Each of these plagues, as they will later be called, conquest, violence, economic injustice and disaster, and widespread death, are in the news every single day. These things have always been, and they will come again. In a very real sense, the four horsemen are already here. That's a lot to take in on a Sunday morning. What do we do with all of this? What are we to celebrate? How are we to celebrate? How are we to respond? How can you and I find a reason to rejoice along with the people of God in Psalm 98, to sing with joy when God, God comes to judge the earth? First, it needs to be said that we'll see more to celebrate. And if you read it, you're going to go, really? Where? Trust me. You're going to see more to celebrate in, as we work our way through the rest of chapter 6, dip a little bit into chapter 8. For now, however, I want us to go on a quick journey to three places in Scripture as we prepare to close in worship and communion. And Sam, I've lost connection, so it's all on you. Go to uh, the slide that's got one, Revelation 1, 17 to 18. This is, this is the first stop. A few chapters back, chapter 1, where John sees a vision of Jesus. After describing what Jesus looked like, he writes this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Before Jesus lays out all he has to say to the seven churches, he puts it in context. He tells them that even though what they are about to hear is frightening, they need not be afraid. Why? Because Jesus has conquered death by death. He has been raised to life again, and he now holds the keys to the very thing that is so frightening to us, death in Hades. As Jesus said in John 16, in preparing his disciples for his arrest and crucifixion, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Second stop. Near the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 through 14, first part of 14. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and, the de and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus bookends this very difficult middle section of the book of Revelation. The trial, the tribulation, the judgment, the pain, the suffering. He bookends that with the promise and the reality of victory. When it's all said and done, what Paul calls our last enemy, death, will be utterly destroyed. Third stop. 
1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul writes of the resurrection of Christ and the promise that we too will one day be resurrected because deeply embedded within Christian theology is the truth that this body and this life is not all there is and that death does not have the final say. Paul finishes off that chapter describing the nature of our natural bodies as perishable and that of our coming resurrection bodies as imperishable. And he says this in verses 52 to 55. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? What we experience in the here and now and in the future is not the end of the story. It is not the end of God's plan for all creation. There is more, so much more. And in that plan, the old order of things will pass away and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Those who walk with God in Christ and pledge to live our lives to Him. Judgment day is good. Judgment day is good. It is when God will perfectly erase all evil and all its effects in the world and death will be defeated. Death is not our inheritance. Resurrection is our inheritance. A new heavens and a new earth is our inheritance. Would you pray with me as we close? Good and gracious God, this is a hard chapter. There are hard chapters yet to come. But we thank you that all of this is embedded within the context of the bigger story of your own righteousness, justice, grace, love, and mercy. So I pray, God, that even as we look at the world around us and what is happening, even as we look at what might happen in the future, even as we read or watch the news and may be uh, tempted to fear, that we would be reminded that we need not be afraid. Help us to find, God, the courage to move forward into the life that you've given us as those who know that resurrection is the final word. Help us to come alive, to come awake, to live for you, Lord God, to honor you with our lives, with our relationships. And help us, O God, to be ever mindful of those who do not know you, of those who need to come to understand your goodness, grace, and mercy. Help us, O God, to pray for them, to serve them, to listen to them, and to be present to them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.